before we get started, what does home mean to you? When I say the word home, um, and I don't mean like shout out like answers, but, but, but kind of think in your head, what does is, what is home mean to you? When, you? when you hear the words, when you think about home, what does it mean? It, it, uh, it'll recall different images for, for most of us. Uh, we've been going kind of, we started off this, this series, A Christmas Blueprint, and we've used this image of a house, a house that maybe has the potential to be a home, but is not quite a home yet. For some of us in this room, you may, when you hear the word home, you may think of something, uh, maybe a, a warm memory, a memory that uh, you recall with fondness. Maybe you were sick and you were in bed and it was warm and you had somebody that you loved taking care of you. Or maybe you weren't sick, but you were faking it and you were in bed and, and letting uh, others take care of you. Uh, maybe it is memories around a dinner table. In my home, uh, we didn't really use the dinner table as kind of a focus piece. When I was growing up, we used the living room as, the, you know, we'd all kind of run through the kitchen and grab, you know, our, our food or whatever, and we would all kind of park ourselves on the soft furniture in the living room. But each one of us has a different story, a different thought, a different memory about home. Some of them are good, like, I, like, like I've just said, and some of them aren't so good. Uh, for some, home isn't something that is consistent. For some, when they think of home, they think of uh, moving from place to place, often two uh, or three times in, in, in just a couple years. Uh, they think of, uh, of memories that, that are hard. Uh, maybe they think of yelling. They think maybe of stress about money. Uh, but the point is that whenever we think of home, we have a lot of different images in our head. And I want to read something here for you. It'll kind of get us kicked off and, and move it in the right direction. No one wants to leave home unless home is the mouth of a shark. You only run for the border when you see the whole city running as well. Your neighbors are running faster than you. Breath bloody in their throats. The boy you went to school with, you know, the one who kissed you dizzy behind the old tin factory. He's holding a gun that is bigger than his body. You only leave home when home won't let you stay. No one leaves home unless home chases you. Fire under feet, hot blood in your belly. It's something that you've never thought of doing until the blade burnt threats into your neck. And even then, you carried the anthem in your breath, only tearing up your passport in the airport bathroom, sobbing as each, with each mouthful of paper, made it clear that you won't be going back. That poem was written by Orson Cher. She's a Kenyan-born Somali refugee. She lives in the UK now, and this poem, along with many of the poems within her collection, uh, speak to the traumatic events of refugees. They speak of, of what we see all too often in the news, that is people fleeing home, people who's, who had one vision of home and then something kind of happened to that, something external kind of, that whole thing came crushing down around them and they had to flee, they had to move, they had to get out of there, they had to go 
somewhere else. And as we, you know, kind of think about Christmas season and as we, we look forward to celebrating the birth of Jesus, we need to remember that, that Joseph and Mary, too, were refugees. I picture Joseph walking his wife and his infant son through these desert trading paths, going down to Egypt, tossing his pride aside and taking care of the awesome family that God has given him. I think of Mary and, and the stress that she must have felt as, as this baby, this infant, cries for a home, for consistency. I want you to close your eyes for just a second and picture something here. Picture Mary and Joseph making their way down to Egypt. Now shift that picture to the refugees that we've seen recently on the news. Maybe on our Facebook feeds. But really look at them. Look at their clothes. Imagine how they smell. The sweat. The smoke. Imagine the crack in their voice. The crack of desperation as they cry out. Keep your eyes closed for a second. Let me read this. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in the land of darkness, on them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nations, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you with joy at the harvest, as a people exult when dividing plunder. Your, for the yoke of their burden, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For the boots of the trampling warriors and the garments that have been rolled in blood shall be burned up as fuel in the fire. For unto us a child is born. A son has been given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders. And he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually and there shall be endless peace. For the throne... Of David and for his kingdom, he will establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From this day onward, forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You can open your eyes now. So that's a pretty familiar passage that we hear almost every Christmas. But what you may not realize is that passage was inspired as Isaiah looks out upon refugees fleeing into the city of Jerusalem. A lot of scholars estimate that within about two years, uh, the city, the population of Jerusalem tripled in size. And to give you a little bit of background history, um, or, you know, kind of background or context to what was going on in Isaiah's time, 
you have to kind of all go all the way back to the time of David and Solomon. And so, you know, you have this one people, this one group that worship this God known as Yahweh. And, and they're, they're moving from this, this kind of cultic tribal religion where each city has its own God. And there's, you know, kind of all of these gods out there. Uh, but it's these people that are, are being called to the worship of one God, one true living God. And this God that has brought them out of slavery. They ha- kind of have this collected uh, history uh, God had brought them up out of Egypt. And so they, they kind of struggle for their, their kind of cultural identity for a while. And eventually they get a king. They get David. Uh, and he's a pretty good king. And they get Solomon. And, you know, he kind of, there's, there's some things there. But he's, he's by, for the most part, he's a pretty good king. And, and, and the whole kingdom prospers. But right after Solomon, the kingdom splits. And the, the text gives us a couple different reasons. But regardless of the reasons, there's now two kingdoms. But these two kingdoms still share in this idea that there is one God. There is Yahweh. Uh, and, and he is to be worshipped alone. This God is, is the only God that is to be worshipped. Um, and so the northern kingdom retains the name Israel. Uh, and its capital is in Samaria. Which, if you know the New Testament, Samaria kind of comes in and plays a, a, a large part there as well. And then, so, and then the southern kingdom is known as Judah. And its capital city is in Jerusalem. And uh, what you have is about a few hundred years of, of peace in the region. Now, when I say peace, I don't mean complete peace, because when we read the biblical text, we see that there were kind of some border scrimmages, you know, all these, uh, the Philistines and the Hittites and the Aramites and, you know, all of the ites that the Old Testament lists, you know, these are, you know, kind of the localized tribal enemies. And these are just kind of border disputes, border fights. But the point is, there was no region, there was no big, uh, there was no empire that was, that was really kind of taking over until uh, the Assyrian Empire got a foothold in the city of Nineveh, which Nineveh should be a recognizable you know, name too, because that was where you know, God did send a prophet to Nineveh, Jonah. And so um, you know, that, that should kind of ring some bells in our mind. But, so the, uh, uh, the Assyrian Empire kind of got a foothold, and they, they, they started to kind of realize, hey, you know, we're strong, we're mighty, we're going to go ahead and start taking over some, some land, we're going we're gonna, to, um, their plan was to take over the whole Mediterranean kind of coastline there, see, so, oh wow, great map, that's awesome, so all the way, you know, from up top, uh, see, Nineveh is a little bit north of Damascus, and you see, you know, kind of the Assyrian Empire, you know, how it says that, uh, they, they moved down into Damascus, and they, they started the trek south, and their plan was to control that whole region all the way to Egypt, because as long as they did that, they could control all of the, the wealth that was produced in that area. They could, produce, they could control all of the trading routes um, in that area. And so, uh, and especially, so just uh, uh, east of Samaria was actually a really, really, like, a fertile area where uh, a lot, like, pretty much most of, of the grain uh, most of the food uh, for that region was grown in that area. And so it was a very strategic area to have. Now, what you need to know about the Syrian Empire, because each empire has a different take on conquest. You know, they all kind of do it just a little bit different. Now, with the Assyrian Empire, they gave you three choices when they went to conquer you. Uh, they'd kind of come into the city, and they'd, you know, kind of march outside. And they, they said, you, you've got one of, of three choices that you can pick. You can, one, pay us tribute and, uh, you know, swear allegiance to us and pay us tribute and you could kind of keep your localized leadership. We're going to leave you kind of politically 
alone. We're going to let you be autonomous, but, uh, but you're going to pay us every year uh, a big tax just for us being so awesome. And uh, that's kind of the first option they would give them. The second option is they said, uh, you, can, you can try to resist. Uh, and if you try to resist, what you'll do uh, is, you know, you'll kind of do this, uh, you know, we'll, we'll surround your city. And we're going to starve you out. We're going we're gonna to besiege your city. And then we will partially destroy your city. And what we're going to do is we're going to take half of you and we're going to relocate you somewhere else. And then we're going to bring another city's population and relocate it here. And, and the reason they would do that is so that culturally uh, they couldn't rebel again. Because, you know, they would take half of them out and bring uh, another group of people in. And, and they would let, because uh, what they know about uh, people, which is, is very interesting here. What they realize about people is that uh, when you bring in newcomers, a lot of times there's conflict because there's conflict and they're going to let the cities, you know, fight their own internal conflict and they would never be able to rebel because they would be too busy fighting each other. And isn't that very interesting? The third option was total destruction. You know, you, you rebel against us, uh, that that's it totally we're going to destroy you um samaria at first was a vassal state they chose option number one but then after um so in in the the first leader was uh tilgath or uh, sorry let me tiglath pilzar you know i i worked on these names so i need to say them you know because you know i i worked on the uh this week so um he was, he was kind of the first one that pushed into uh, the region, and, and Samaria chose to be a vassal state. They said, okay, fine, we're going to pay you, but let us be ourselves. And as soon as he died, they said, oh, well, you know, I bet his son is weak. His son isn't going to be able to sustain the empire. And his son was Shal Manzar. And, uh, and they said, oh, his, his son, wouldn't. so they rebelled. They, they, they pushed back, and they said, all right, we're going we're gonna, to... Uh, throw them off. We're not going to pay tribute anymore. Uh, and of course, the Assyrian Empire didn't like that. And they came uh, and besieged the city. And ultimately, they ended up deporting. Um, the records that we have that we've discovered in, in the city of Nineveh tells us that about 20,000 uh, men, not including women and children, 20,000 men were carried off from the city of uh, Samaria alone by the Assyrian Empire there. So, as, as the Assyrian Empire be, continued to go down through that region and continued to have all of this destruction, uh, the people in the north began to remember something. They began to think about this shared heritage that they once had. They, they began to think about the United Kingdom and, and when David and Solomon were on the throne. And they, they thought maybe, just maybe, there might be refuge in the city of David. Maybe there might be refuge in the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem. And it's to this scene, it's to this scene that, that Isaiah begins to speak. See, Isaiah knew kind of the end was coming. And if you read, you know, kind of his, his text, you know, his, his book, uh, you'll see that it's pretty bleak. It's, there's not a lot of, uh, of positivity, a lot of hopefulness, especially in the beginning part of Isaiah. But when you get to chapter 9, when you get to chapter 9, Isaiah kind of shifts tones just a little bit. And it gets dark again. 
But he's looking at the city of refugees. He's looking as, as the people pour in. He's looking as the fear begins to spread like a disease. Because as the refugees pour in, the inhabitants, those who, who grew up in Jerusalem, what do you think they're thinking? We're next. They're moving south. We're next. And it's into that. It's into that scenario that, that Isaiah writes. child unto us a son is given to us and his name is wonderful counselor mighty God prince of peace everlasting father as we continue this this series Christmas blueprint what we need to the central image Wesley gave us last week was not one of a blank lot in new construction It was one of a house that has been falling down, that the windows are kind of kicked in, the grass has grown up, the chain link fence is kind of pushed over and like halfway rotted. You know, there's, uh, you know, kind of the shingles are all kind of white, you know, after they've been kind of sitting in the sun and, and they get old. I know you've seen these houses where the shingles are kind of falling off of the roof there, sidings kind of drooping down. This is a house in disrepair. And the reason Wesley used that image, and not the image of a new construction, is because the Christmas story didn't just happen. It's not a house that is, is built and then is just there. But houses need to be maintained. Because when houses aren't maintained, they quickly look like the house that we've described in this series. It's that the Christmas story happens when Isaiah looked out at, at, these, at these refugees pouring in, the, these refugees who, who were, had abandoned hope, who had just, you know, they had just a seed of hope left, and they're just... He imagines a son. In a time when the Roman Empire had pretty much conquered the known world, when Herod the Great is kind of this puppet king on the throne of, of Israel, and, and he's making a mockery of all who have worshipped Yahweh. Like he's just, I mean, when you read about some of the things that Herod did, you just realize he's, when there seems to be no hope, Mary gives birth. And today, when we look around at a world that seems to be spinning out of control, at a world when we look at our own problems and we, we see that, uh, you know, whether it's financial, whether it's relational, whether it's job-related, that there are stresses, whether it is, you know, just simply us looking at the political climate. We, we know that, the, that there's stuff going on. And then we look over like in, at the other side of the world and we look at people who have far less than us. We look at people who are struggling and we see this world and we say something is wrong with this. And it's into that that we celebrate this season. A child is born. It's not that Christmas happened, but it's that Christmas happens over and over again. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. And Prince of Peace. This morning, I want to look at each of these titles. And I want to kind of look at, at what they mean, not only in Isaiah's context and in Jesus' context, but also in our context. And it might help you to know um, that these titles are not uncommon in the ancient world. A lot of times, as a new pharaoh was born, uh, or a new king was born, uh, or, or, or uh, during the coronation ceremony, uh, 
titles like this would be given. Uh, in uh, Egypt, there was actually f- uh, five titles that were, were customarily given to any uh, child that was born to the Pharaoh. And these would signify things like wisdom and power and, and authority. And, and they would kind of signal uh, what, what kind of reign that this king would have. And so, as we look at these titles today, I, I, want, us, I want to say very clearly right up front, it's not that Jesus simply embodied these titles. It's not that Jesus just, just met these titles. It's not that he fulfilled them. It's that he redefined them. Jesus completely took these titles and he turned them on their head. Wonderful Counselor. So um, when we look at Wonderful Counselor, what that signifies and what biblical scholars would say is this is a title that signifies wisdom. But it's not wisdom in the way that you think it is. It's not wisdom uh, the way that uh, this world thinks of wisdom. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, as he's kind of looking back at, at Jesus' life, looking back at the way he lived, looking back at, at the way he died, he says this. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness for those who are perishing, but for those of us who have been saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. Where is the one who was wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater? Has God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through God's wisdom. God decided through foolishness to proclaim to save those who would believe. For the Jews demanded a sign and the Greeks desired wisdom, but we proclaim Christ and Christ crucified, the stumbling block to the Jew and foolishness to the Gentile. But for those who have been called both Jew and Greek, the power of Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. And God's weakness is stronger than human strength. It's as if Paul is looking back, um, and really you, you get a sense of this throughout all of the scripture. Um, it's as if Paul is looking and he's saying, on one hand you have logic, you have reason, you have what makes sense in this world. You have wisdom. And it's a special kind of wisdom. It's a wisdom that, uh, that allows uh, the powerful to stay powerful. It allows them to kind of manipulate into politics. There, there is a wisdom. There is a way that you can do things smart. You know, that, that's a phrase. Well, do it smart. Do it smart sometimes means um, do it clever. Get your way in. There is a wisdom of this world, and it's almost like he kind of puts that against something else, and he says, but there's also, oh, oh, there's also faith. And sometimes you have to look at the wisdom of this world, and you have to look at faith, and you have to say, this doesn't make sense, but I'm going to choose to believe. I'm going to choose to engage, even though, like, it... What God's calling me to do doesn't necessarily make sense. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't jive with the wisdom of this world, but, but I'm going to choose. I'm going to choose to live into that anyway. A phrase that, that I've heard a lot is kingdom math 
doesn't always add up. Kingdom math doesn't always add up. When you look into the scriptures and when you see the kind of life that God is calling us, when you see the life that Christ lived and and asked us to imitate, it doesn't always make sense. It doesn't seem like it's going to work out. But what Paul is saying is when you, look at, when you look at the wisdom of this world and you look at belief and you look at faith, you've got to go with belief. You've got to go with faith. And, you know, if we can jump back just a little bit here. And, you know, I mentioned Solomon, you know, who we know is the wisest man in the world. But when you look at his life, when you look at, at, at kind of the direction his life went, he chose wisdom over faith. And obedience. And wisdom is great. But it's not as good as faith and obedience. And so when, when, when Jesus takes on this title of wise counselor, what he's doing is he's redefining it. And he's saying wisdom, the wisdom of God, doesn't always look like what you think it looks like. It looks a lot more like faith and obedience. And that second title... Everlasting God, or uh, Mighty God. So that is, uh, Mighty God is, is actually kind of a common title. You see that quite a bit uh, within the context of, of, you know, kind of when you're naming a, a king. And it, and it basically signifies power and authority, you know, because no one is more powerful than a, and, and has more authority than God. And to be a mighty God, it's almost redundant. It's like, you know powerful and authority and and so that's kind of what this title signifies but once again when we look into the life of Jesus Jesus takes what we think of as power and authority and he redefines it he turns it on its head and, and specifically he's walking one day with a group of friends and the friends uh have their mom you know kind of walking along with them and, and they're all kind of talking and then uh they say hey mom go go ask him and he's, they're like, she's asking what? Go ask him, ask him which one of us he likes more. And the mom kind of comes up to Jesus and says, hey, you know, when you come in your glory, because, you know, we see that, you know, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. And, you know, when you really kick off your kingdom, when you, when you power up and when you take down the Roman Empire, when you, you know, they had this vision of, of what Jesus was supposed to do at the end of his life. And, and, and uh, when, when you ramp this thing up, which of my sons is going to be at your right and which one's going to be at the left? Because, you know, that's what we really want to know is which one of us, you know, has, you know, the ticket in. And, you know, which one of us is going to be number two? Jesus redefines power and he, he says that, uh, he says, you know, the kings of this world, the empires of this world, they... They take power and they, they lord it over you. They take their authority and they leverage it against you so that they can benefit. They're tyrants. That's not the way power is going to be in my kingdom. That's not the way it's going to be for you. See, when you have power and when you have authority, you're not to use it for your own gain. You're not to use it to acquire more power, more authority. That's what the world does, and that's, that's, that's the world. But with you, if you're going to place your faith in me, if you are going to follow me, if you are going to let me redefine your life, then, then you take your power and your authority and you use it on behalf of others. 
That is the only approved use of power and authority, according to Jesus. For the Son of Man, speaking of himself, did not come to be served, but he came to serve. He came to redefine how we think of power and how we think of authority. John records of a dinner that happened not too long after that initial that conversation that we just looked at. A dinner where Jesus is, is meeting with his closest friends and followers. And they begin arguing about who's going to sit at the right and who's going to sit at the left. And they, they just don't get it. You know, they, they, they've heard Jesus talk about this. They've seen Jesus serve the poor. But they don't get it because they think, oh, well, you know, we're just serving because that's wisdom. You know, you serve, you get in with, you know, the people. And then, and then once the people, you know, put you in power, then you can, you know. And they didn't get it. And so the text says, and, and there's a couple different ways uh, that this is translated in, in different versions, uh, English versions of the text. One says, when all things had been put into Jesus' hands. Another uh, way to translate uh, that word or, or that phrase that is, that is there is, uh, when all power and authority had been given over to Jesus. All power and all authority in heaven and on earth had been given unto Jesus. And it says, when Jesus realized, when Jesus knew, that is, Jesus is sitting there, he's listening to his, his closest friends argue about who's going to be greater, and he realizes, the Father has given me all power and all authority in heaven and on earth right now. And the next thing that I do the next thing that I do will shape how people view power from now on. The next thing that I do will change everything. So what does Jesus decide to do? Well, the text says he gets up and he takes off his outer robe, ties a towel around his waist, and begins to wash the feet of those who would abandon him, those who would betray him, selling him out for a little bit of pocket change. And those who would deny ever having met him. Knowing what would happen just later on that night, Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. Because power is not meant to leverage on the behalf of of yourself, but power is now meant to leverage on the behalf of others. And that changes everything. Changes the way that we, as a people who, who follow Christ, need to think of power. John helps us out again uh, when we think of the next title, uh, Everlasting Father. And this, was, this would be a title that would signify uh, a reign, um, a dynasty. This would be a title that would uh, signify consistency and longevity. And so when you would say everlasting father, that would mean that this king would be the everlasting father of a reign. You know, when we think of... Uh, uh, a lot of times we hear the phrase, the house of David. And we, even though that David's long gone, uh, but these other kings represented David because he was the everlasting father. He was the one who kind of kicked off this dynasty. 
And so when Jesus gets that title, uh, John uh, helps us out when, when he, he records to us some of the things that Jesus was saying to his disciples. And John 14, you know, kind of right, right before the end, he starts talking about this idea of abiding. He starts saying that, you know, I'm going to send a spirit. I'm going to send the messenger, uh, the paraclete, the, the one who will come beside you and who will walk with you. I'm going to send my spirit, and my spirit is going to abide in you. No longer are we to think of dynasties. No longer are we to think of, of kingdoms in the way that, uh, that the earth thinks of kingdoms. No longer is it going to be a physical throne, a physical kingdom that, that is just going to, you know, kind of build up and, and will have descendants. But now, from now on, my kingdom is going to be on the hearts of men. My kingdom is going to abide in you. And if you would only, if you would only lean into that, and if you will abide in me, I promise I will abide in you. And, and, and my effect will be consistent. My effect will, will carry generations into the future. It will carry my kingdom forward. My kingdom will rule forever, not because not because of the power or the control or the, the glory of, of those whom I send, but it will, it will reign forever because it is written on the hearts of humanity. And then Prince of Peace. This kind of final title. Jesus again redefines what, what peace means. You know, I, I started off this morning by asking you uh, what home meant, what images you, you thought of when, when you thought of home. For some of you, that was a peaceful image, and for others, it was not. Around this, this, this time of year, um, a lot of us are looking for peace. Some of you know this. So I went to undergrad here at Atlanta Christian College when it was still on this campus. Lived in an apartment, you know, not too far down the road there and across the street. And that was a time of kind of, you know, transition and changing things. Yeah, we had left uh, good jobs, uh, jobs that we thought were, you know, pretty, pretty consistent in an economy that was awful. <laughs> uh, one of the, the, you know, so we, we moved in the fall of 2008, is it eight or 2009? Yeah, 2009. So, you know, uh, just a year earlier, you know, kind of that economic, you know, the, the collapse of 2008 had happened in, uh, and the economy was struggling. But we left our jobs and, and came up here. And it was, it was a time of transition and it was time of, of learning to be peaceful even when you had a lot of stress on the outside. Uh, I always joke that we should have gotten extra cords like around our neck for graduation. Those, you know, the, the badges or achievement cords or whatever. Uh, because we entered college with uh, one child and we left college with two children. Um, that, that, you know, that should count for something, like an extra bump in GPA, or at least put it on our transcripts, you know, let people know, uh, you know, yeah, we were, we were parents, we were husband and wife, we were students, both of us were in school, and both of us had jobs. Uh, at one point, uh, I think we had five jobs between 
the two of us, and we're just struggling trying to, to uh, put all the pieces together. Um, and that was, that was a busy time. But I have to say that this semester, for whatever reason, this last semester of, of school for me has been one of the most stressful uh, semesters of my life for, for a lot of different reasons. You know, I'm father, husband, intern. Uh, I'm an Uber Lyft driver <laughs> most nights, which means, you know, I don't get as much sleep as I probably should, but I never drive sleepy. So just, uh, you should know that. Uh, And I don't know. I've been through a transition this semester. And what I've learned is that peace is never circumstantial. Because if you're going to look to your circumstances for peace, you're not going to find it. In fact, the more you look to your circumstances, the more you look around at, at whether it, it, it's money or relationships or, uh, or, you know, kind of school or work or, or whatever you're going to look, whatever you're going to look outward and, and try to find peace in, you're not going to find it if you're looking to your circumstances for peace. And that's how Jesus redefines peace for us. He says, no, I'm, I'm going to become part of you. I'm going to become your very identity. And I'm going to rule in your heart. And you're going to look to me for peace. You're going to look to me when, when, when life is pushing down and everything seems to be crushing you. In fact, so in Philippians, Paul uh, is speaking to, just to put some context, the last time he saw the Philippian church, like in person, he was being drug away and beaten and thrown in jail. So, you know, your pastor is being drug away, beaten and thrown in jail, and then a couple years later, he writes, hey, it all worked out for the good. I mean, I'm in jail again. Uh, there, there, like, there was this other event, and I'm in jail again. But it, it worked out for the good because, you know, God is working all things, you know, and, and he's, he's pull, pulling things together. And, and let me tell you a little bit about Jesus' character and how you should imitate that. And then, you know, about halfway through the letter, he uses this phrase. Uh, and he says, I have learned the secret to being content in all things. And now that, that term, we, we translate it secret because it's about the best translation that we can get. But that, that, that particular word there is actually used for like an initiation process for a cult. And what he, you know, there are other words that Paul wanted to say kind of simply secret. But what he's saying there is he's, he's saying, you know, I've learned the, the initiation process. I've learned the secret handshake to being content. I always think of, uh, you know, soda machines and, and, you know, kind of the vending machines and how, you know, it seems like there's a secret to getting your dollar just flat enough. <laughs> um, because I'm an Uber driver, uh, Lyft driver, I vacuum out my car a lot, and there are about three uh, vacuums around town. It doesn't matter what, pin, what quarter I put in there. They're going to spit them back out at me. I'm like, no. And you put it in like four or five times, and then finally it'll take it. And then you start putting it. He's saying, I've, I've learned the trick. 
I've learned how to get the vacuum turned on. I've learned how to get the Coke machine to, to do its thing and to take my dollar the first time. I've learned the initiation process to being content. That is placing your life. And that is having Jesus as your very identity. Later on, he says, in Colossians, as he's talking about this, He says, if you have been raised in, with Christ, and he's, he's talking to this Colossian church, and he's kind of giving them a little bit of theology and, and helping them understand what it means to be a, a believer, what it means to, to be caught up in Christ, what it means to be baptized. If you have been raised in Christ, and he's talking about this, this, this idea that, that when, when you are a believer and you, and you choose to get baptized and you choose to engage in the family and the kingdom of God, that, that you are actually kind of participating in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus as you, as you are buried and as you are raised. And as you are raised in Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things of this earth, for you have died and your very life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your very life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called to be one body and be thankful. Peace is not circumstantial. And he drops in this phrase, you are called to be one body. And this is ultimately where I wanted to get to this morning. You can think of everything else as just kind of setting up this one point. Because when I, I look at the titles of Isaiah and when I look at how Jesus embodied them and how he redefined them and how he shifted them, and then I look at my life and I look at, at our life and I look at what it means to be the church. The dominant image I have of church in my mind, the dominant image that, uh, that I've always kind of gravitated towards is, is this image, this metaphor that Paul gives us about the body. I, as part of my internship, I had a big paper due this week. Um, I, I thought it was five pages. I, you know, I read that somewhere on the syllabus earlier in the semester. And then about uh, a day and a half before I had to have the paper turned in, uh, I, I went back and I said, well, I, I need to review, you know, kind of how the, what the professor's expecting of this. Uh, and I realized that it was actually 15 pages. <laughs> that the five-page paper that I thought I read about was actually a five-page self-evaluation that was to a company, so I needed to write 20 pages in about three days. Uh, and it was, it was looking at this church. It was looking at Tri-Cities, and it was, it was doing these deep analysis and looking at, you know, kind of demographics and, and about, you know, culture and all of that kind of stuff. And as I looked at Tri-Cities, and, and I was thinking of this image, this image of the body, there's something really beautiful going on here. I mean, really beautiful going on here. Because when you read the words of Paul and when he describes the church, 
he describes people who had no business being in the same room with each other. He describes people of different generations, of different ethnicities, of different political backgrounds. He says they have no business being in the same room together, but yet they're one. In 1 Corinthians, he kind of expounds upon this. And, and so when we, when we think of 1 Corinthians, we think of a city that is very kind of urban and metropolitan. This is the, Corinth was pretty much like the hipster capital of, of Paul's day. Like if it was cool, if it was trendy, if it was hip, uh, if it was leading edge, you know, like they were the ones who had all of... Um, you know, kind of the farm-to-table stuff before it was cool. Uh, they had, you know, uh, fair trade coffee. And I, so that, that's, they're experimenting. And, and they're, they're pushing on, on the bounds of what it means to be a church. And they're trying to get their identity. Uh, and, and Paul's trying to help them consolidate their identity without, without allowing them to really blend into culture. He's saying, no, 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 don't, don't, don't blend in. You need to stand out. But in standing out, this is what you look like. This is, this is your dominant metaphor. This is how you are to think of yourselves. You should think of yourselves as one body. And, and, and let me tell you, a body is made up of many parts. And, and each of these parts are valuable. Each of these parts have a job that is essential. And just because a, a hand looks to the foot and says, you're not a hand, doesn't mean the foot isn't valuable. Just because an eye may look to the mouth or, or the hand and say, well, you're not an eye, doesn't mean that other part isn't valuable. In fact, in fact, the foot is valuable precisely because it is not a hand. Diversity is required to make this body. If, 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 if every part of the body is a hand, like, one, that's really weird looking. <laughs> you know, like, you know, uh, that, that's the kind of thing nightmares are made out of. Um, it looks weird. It's distorted. And number two, and more importantly, it can't, it can't follow out its mission. Paul says we all have different, different jobs, different things that, that are required of us. But we make up how many bodies? One. One body. And that is not just anybody, but that is the body of Christ. I believe that's more than a metaphor. I believe that's more than just Paul kind of, you know, kind of scratching his head and trying to see, you know, how can I explain this? How can I, you know, incorporate diversity, but, you know, the leadership of Christ? How can I consolidate and give this group an identity? I believe this is more than a metaphor. I believe that Paul is actually saying that we, as the church, as, as participating in the worship of Jesus Christ, as when we participate in communion, when we participate in things like what we've done this morning, when we sing praises, as we participate in the church, that we are the very body of Christ. And as the very body of Christ, we have some titles to live into. Let me read those again. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. 
in a world full of refugees and a world full of suffering people. Isaiah looks out at this crowd that is coming in and he, he smells the smoke from the cities that they have left. He sees the mom crying because she can't provide food for her infant children. He sees the dejected looks on the fathers as they want so much to defend their family, but the odds just seem stacked against them. And as he hears reports of the Assyrian army marching towards Jerusalem, he looks at this this mess, this 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 thing that, that makes it to where you it's to where it seemed hopeless. And into that, he says, For unto us a child is given. And when we look out at the world today, we need to realize that together, when we operate as the church, we're that child. We're the very body of Christ. We have to not only take on these titles, but, but in the way that Jesus redefined them. This Christmas season, you've got an opportunity. You've got an opportunity to live into the church like you've never lived into the church before. And I'm, don't wait until New Year's because a lot of times, you know, once it gets to the end of the year, we, we all have these, uh, or I shouldn't say we all. I know I have the, uh, the inclination to push things off and say, oh, well, I'm going to get to that next year. I'm going to get to that next year. But the truth is, Now's the time. Now's the time to embody these things. We're going to take communion in just a second here. And this too is the body of Christ. That's that, well, how can it be the church? And how can it be the belief, trust, and obedience? I want you to picture in your mind this morning as we take communion. I want you to picture the bigger picture. And I want you to know that as you do this, what you are, what you are doing is you are participating in something larger than just a cup of juice and a piece of cracker. That there have been believers for over 2,000 years doing this. There, the, that you are participating, you are, you are acting in unison with the body of Christ. That is the church over time, over, you know, the distance. And this isn't just something that, that is routine, but this is something that is much deeper. And as you take communion, I want to ask you, how are you going to live into the body of Christ this year? How are you going to live into these titles? Because we need you. We can't do it by ourselves. We need you. Because you're part of the body. Heavenly Father, I know kind of where I am spiritually and emotionally right now, but 
but I don't know where everybody in this room is. And I just pray that you use your spirit to lead and to guide and to move them where you want them to be. Lord, I pray. Lord, I pray that we fully incorporate ourselves into the body. We fully take on these titles. We fully live into what it is to be the body of Christ. To live in a way that the world doesn't make sense. Or, or, or as the world looks at us, they, they don't see they don't see the wisdom in it. But that we're we're choosing to believe and obey. Lord, I I pray that we lean into this way of leveraging power not for our benefit, but for the benefit of others. Lord, I pray that we abide in you and you abide in us. And Lord, I pray that as we look inside into what you're doing in our lives, that you would let peace reign over us. Lord, we love you and we trust you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.